Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Our preacher for tonight is not me. No, not awe. It's amazing because our preacher for tonight is the Reverend Rebecca Anderson. I don't know, I, there's so much I could tell you about Rebecca. Uh, I count her as one of my closest friends and fellow workers in this work of ministry. Although, Rebecca and I have never lived in the same place. We see each other mostly by accident. We have a whole relationship that is built on a few stolen hours here or a few stolen days there, once a year, once every two years. This time it had been almost three years since we'd seen each other. Um, And those times that we get to spend together are built on intense and delightful conversations about the things that matter most to both of us. My relationship with Rebecca and Galileo Church's relationship with Gilead Church, Rebecca's church in Chicago, puts me in mind of my favorite genre of novel and movie that is the beloved genre of zombie apocalypse. I also like nuclear apocalypse, environmental apocalypse, viral apocalypse novels and movies. And I like them especially because something catastrophic has happened at the very beginning. You don't have to wait for the crisis. It's already over. And now the plot is a journey, right? Always after a zombie apocalypse, the survivors of the catastrophe are headed somewhere. They're traveling somewhere, somewhere that they've heard about where somebody maybe has a cure or a vaccine, or a compound, or a plan. It's like a refuge in their imagination from the insanity and the violence and the degradation of the human experience after everything has come undone. And maybe it exists, the CDC in Atlanta, the Andes in South America, maybe maybe it does exist, and maybe it does not. Maybe the rumors they've heard are false, but It's the hope that keeps them going. You have to keep moving after the zombie apocalypse. You have to keep moving and keep believing that it's out there. Because if you lose hope in those movies, you die. So Gilead in Chicago and Galileo in Fort Worth are kind of like that for each other. Right? Everything comes undone. The North American mainline church as we've known it is in serious decline. Even the evangelical churches are experiencing the effects of this cultural apocalypse that we all were just born into. We didn't start the fire. Our culture is fractured. There's a lot, maybe you've noticed, a lot of meanness in the air. Neighbor-on-neighbor violence is not even surprising anymore. And it takes a lot of faith to keep believing. I know that's not terribly logical what I just said, but you know what I mean? It takes a lot of faith to keep believing that the Jesus story, and I mean the only story Jesus ever told, that the reign of God is bending 
is bending the long arc of the moral universe towards something more beautiful than we have imagined. It's bending the arc of the universe toward justice and mercy for the whole human family and all the vast cosmos. Man, it takes a lot of faith to keep believing that that is even possible. A lot of faith to keep believing that we are not alone. You know, the 50 or 60 or 70 of us gathered here tonight, the individuals and couples and families who are out there online just sort of chatting into the internet, just sending out messages, are you there, are you there, I'm here. A lot of faith to keep believing that we are not alone in imagining that God gets everything God wants and then living like that's true. <laughs> living like that's true. Trusting that we are not alone in knowing that what God wants and will have is more of us, more of each of us, more fully alive, more fully ourselves, not constricted or constrained or closeted, but liberated from all that bullshit, all that self-loathing and all that deep despair, truly free to live into the love that, well, the love, to live into the love. And Gilead, in Chicago, this super queer storytelling church in a bar that Rebecca built with a bunch of spiritual refugees just like us, except they don't say y'all. See, for me, for me, Gilead is a zombie apocalypse destination. It's the place that I would set out for to know that things are gonna be all right. It's the place that I would believe in. I would believe that I would find refuge and solace and friends if everything else went to shit. That's where I'd go. Knowing that Gilead is out there would keep me going. So that's why I invited Rebecca here for a storytelling workshop the other night and all that fine work that she did for us the last few days and for the preaching tonight. I invited her here as an emissary from that outpost that refuge, another one of these rare, untimithical, safe, beautiful places where God is breaking through. That's why I want you to know her and to know her church and to know her way of talking about the gospel because then you'll have it too. You'll have a sweet sense that God is working lots of angles in lots of places, a lot like this place. Thanks be to God. And thanks be to Rebecca. Thanks is not enough to say for all the love that she has poured into our little outpost in the last few days. I'm telling y'all, she is exhausted for our sake, for our sake, and for the sake of this project that she and I have been working on together apart for a long damn time. And so our receipt of the gospel from Reverend Rebecca Anderson tonight is our practice of graciously receiving care from our far-flung church family. I'm so glad to be with you. My name is Rebecca, and I use she, her pronouns. Our gospel reading tonight comes from the book of Luke, chapter 10, and we're reading verses 25 to 37. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Should I wait for that light again? <laughs> All right, I'll begin again. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
He said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan while traveling came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. I was laying on the floor of what still gets called the church parlor in the dark. My body hurt so much that very briefly, I truly believed I might die. I called my co-pastor's name, even though I knew he was all the way outside and he couldn't hear me. It was all I could manage. Vince? Vince? And even while I yelled kind of pitifully, if you want to know the truth, I felt so embarrassed. Like, this is what my life is. I'm a middle-aged pastor. I tripped while cleaning up an outdoor worship service. I fell on the ancient and very heavy stool I'd been carrying, and I broke it into two pieces with my sternum. I always and still a single person was calling out from the floor of a darkened room to my colleague to come help me from where I lay on the floor in my stupid but practical cutish wedge sandals, <laughs> some real lady pastor bullshit, and a cute summer dress that suddenly left me feeling very naked, arms and legs splayed out while I gasped in pain. Vince? Y'all, I am so glad to be here tonight. I am so glad to be with you this whole weekend. Folks on Thursday night got to hear about how Katie remembers our first meeting. It involved dirty dishes and Katie's secondhand pajamas. But I know we met earlier. We met at the Disciples of Christ General Assembly where she was on a panel of new church pastors. It was right after y'all had been kicked out of the far best theater, your communion table out on the sidewalk, and after your initial funding had dried up, you were two years old. I was so excited to meet Katie, and she looked so wrung out. I'd known about you for a while already. I found out about you, and I sent an email to my friend with whom I was dreaming of starting a new church. Vince, I wrote my friend. Holy shit, look at this church. Galileochurch.org? And we've been looking over your shoulder ever since. You are cool big sister. I wrote to Katie in an early email exchange in our friendship. We're following Jesus, but sometimes we're doing it in your footsteps. 
So I am bringing love and greetings and admiration and gratitude from Gilead, the church we started. As Katie said, it's a queer storytelling bar church that's always, including now, looking for the next place we'll meet. What theater, what rundown dive bar, what too small storefront will rent to us? And it is not the church where I fell over. I fell over like a total dork and hurt myself so badly that I had to call out to my co-pastor because we actually pastor two churches, which if you want to get into it is too much church. It's called Bethany UCC and it's a historic neighborhood church that's full of old pictures and new people, little kids and queer elders, terrible fake flowers, and a beautiful Easter 2022 explosion of butterflies. Bethany also used to be home to a very old, very heavy piano stool with iron legs and an embroidered seat that you could screw up or screw down. Our cellist, we have a cellist too, I'm not here to brag, um, used to like to sit on it and play. So meeting outside last summer, it was one of the hundreds of pounds, one of the things in the hundreds of pounds of equipment and cable and extension cords that we hauled in and out every Sunday. And I was hauling it back in when I tripped, fell, caught the edge of the seat with my chest, snapping the seat off its base, knocking the wind out of me with the sharpest shock of pain I've ever yet felt in my life. And the thing is, I was already injured. Earlier in the summer, I'd screwed up my knee in a way that put my running totally on hold and even long walks were hard. I felt old and I hated it. I felt limited and I really hated that. I also hate, I will tell you, if you don't tell Bethany UCC, that I also hate setting up for church on Sunday morning. I like pride myself on being able to do it. I pride myself on having a kind of mule-like strength to just work, but it does mean I show up to church sweaty and flushed. But I'm not fancy, you know. I'm proud that I'm steady and strong and capable, and so as I lay there on the floor in the dark calling out for Vince, I was embarrassed and I was mad at myself and maybe a little disgusted too. But the injured person in the ditch on the Jericho Road was beyond all that. Beyond embarrassment, beyond calling out. Robbed, naked, beaten, he was laying there half dead. Jesus gave the victim in this story the advantage of not caring. Like we, and in particular you, I think, you don't have that advantage. I didn't have that advantage on the floor of the parlor, even though I thought I might die, briefly. I wasn't so convinced that I wasn't gonna die, that I was gonna die, that I couldn't also muster up some shame. We don't have the advantage of being so badly beaten down, stripped down, and robbed that we'll take any kind of kindness that comes our way, right? I mean, like, we're not that damaged, are we? Anyway, the guy in the story, he was that damaged his need bleeding out all over the road. Before I came, Katie told me that people around here find this gracious receipt of care from church family to be the hardest of the Galileo co-conspiracy commitments. That you beloved people are ready to pitch in and schlep stuff and take care of others, but that it's more difficult to receive care. Same. Like, I'm not really into receiving care or needing care. There's like the ego aspect, like, I'd rather not, thanks. I'm the capable mule, remember? 
But there's also my sense, well grounded in my own experience, that other people aren't that reliable when it comes to taking care of me. Sometimes because they aren't cut out for it, or they don't know how, or because it turns out, no matter what they say, that it's not actually a priority for them. And I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of specific exes here, like who shall remain nameless, like, you're welcome, Jad. Sorry, it was Jad. Maybe they don't take care of me because they simply don't have what I need, even though like, they're supposed to be the ones who do, and I'm thinking of family of origin, or because they don't really see me in all of who I am, and I'm thinking of a string of bad doctors whose care left me worse off. Maybe you recognize some of that. Maybe you, probably you have your own reasons for not wanting to receive care when you don't. What a gift, then, for people like us, so reasonably resistant to receiving care, that so many people have understood the story of the Good Samaritan to be about how we ought to give care to others. I mean, it's there, right? How we ought to move through the world with eyes for need wherever we find it, regardless of differences between us and those we encounter. Who's my neighbor? The lawyer asks Jesus, looking for some clear guidance. And, and Jesus sort of declines to answer. At the end of the story, he doesn't ask who helped their neighbor, which one helped their neighbor. He doesn't say in the leading tone of a children's sermon, don't you think that anyone in need might be our neighbor? Instead, he asks who acted like a neighbor. And the answer is the one who showed mercy. What good news for people like us that Jesus says, go and do likewise. Great, something to do. And what bad news for us, people like us who have learned so wisely not to entrust ourselves to the care of others. What bad news that in order for the story to make any sense at all, somebody has to be cast in the role of the injured person. Someone has to be willing from where they're crumpled at the bottom of a ditch to receive care. My first attempt to heal my body was to go, when I first hurt my knee years ago, to a walk-in clinic. And I was having trouble walking, but the x-rays showed, nope, you're fine. And gradually I got better. My next attempt last summer was to slow down and work with my trainer and elevate my leg. And my next attempt after the incident with the piano stool was to go to physical therapy. I went to some office of a big Chicago chain just the end of my block. I went there dutifully like two or three times a week and I did these really dumb, really tiny exercises while under the watchful eye of a very young physical therapist to whom I was always tempted to say, um, so just to clarify, like this is what a healthy middle-aged body can look like. Like I just never believed that she understood that I'm actually a runner, that I'm dying to get back to it. I, I never felt like she actually saw me. And then finally I found myself in Stacy's office. A practitioner who I would describe, as I believe y'all like to say, as a grown-ass adult. She was a bodybuilder and a professional tennis player and a talker. Like, as a talker myself, I couldn't get a word in edgewise. It was like all the ways I try to prove myself to people. I'm smart, I'm, I'm funny, I'm relationally intelligent. It didn't matter to her. It was like all she wanted to do was fix my body, which is, after all, what I was there for. That first day I saw her, she told me that my, my little feet have a tendency to turn out. 
She told me, you're a fast little walker, girl. She told me at the end of our session when I did my second round of like diagnostic squats, that she could see by my little face that I could feel a difference. She poked me and jammed her hands into my muscles and used like cupping on my legs and I swear to God a plunger on my knee to like move my kneecap semi-permanently. And she asked about the history of the injury and I told her about the tiny little exercises and she said, yeah, they're good, but they can only go so far. This, she said, this is something you can't fix yourself. You need someone to do something to you in order to fix it. <laughs> my eyes welled up with tears, and from my spot, laying all naked arms and legs on her table, I said, you can start the countdown till I preach about that. <laughs> For the record, it was three and a half months. Jesus told this story to somebody who spent a lot of time walking on the right side of the road, by which I mean following the rules. That lawyer who said his interest, was in his interest was in eternal life, he wanted to make sure he could get it right. He already knew the law, and now he needed to define the terms so he could stay on God's good side. But if you squint at this story a little bit, this lawyer, which some folks understand to mean that he was actually a religious leader himself, a scribe. If you squint, you can see that he's somebody with power. Potentially somebody already getting his basic needs and then some met. So Jesus, in telling this story to this particular person, was addressing what this particular person needed, the way Jesus often did when he stopped and asked somebody, what do you need? or when they asked him for one thing and instead he offered them something else or something more, living water, forgiveness, correction sometimes, healing often. A lot of preachers make a big deal out of the potential danger to the Samaritan. What if it was an ambush? What if the other robbers were, what if the robbers were still around? People make a big deal out of those religious leaders pass by and why? There was the real danger of being ritually unclean. People make a big deal out of the cost to the Samaritan, which he matter-of-factly paid out in time and cash and care. But all of the focus on those potential dangers and actual costs and other characters shifts our gaze away from the actual person laying broken in a ditch at the mercy of strangers. The person who is so obviously if we would all stop trying to figure out from this story what we're supposed to be doing to earn eternal life, the most vulnerable person in the story, the person at most danger, the person with the most needs. Right before this physical therapist and I stopped working together for now, we were talking about some very tiny changes I can keep working on on my own. She had already said some outrageous things to me, like, you're a lot more muscular than I thought you were at first, but you don't know how to use your muscles at all. She once told me, I'm like really good cake ingredients that are put together badly. <laughs> like that is some pure Jesus energy as far as I'm concerned, like naming the truth in a way I can hear it. And I'm like, oh, Stacy says I'm like cake. And also I walk away better. Anyway, she was telling me some exhausting thing about how I could sit better. I've been sitting wrong and walking wrong. I've been doing all the things wrong so that I could be really present to the people I'm with. And then she said, I know more about you than you think I do. <laughs> what? 
And suddenly it wasn't the tiny, dumb, little exercises, but the big picture. When I'm with you, she said, I can feel you present, like all out here. You're very attentive, you're very present to me, but it's my job to teach you to pay attention to what's going on inside of you. Inside of me, there was more pain than I have ever felt but once in my life. It was dark in the room, and I wasn't yet sure what had happened, how I'd fallen. Had I broken ribs? There was the shooting pain. How would I get anybody's attention? After I yelled, I fished for my phone and started to voice text Vince, oh my God, comma, can you come to the parlor? Who does that? Before I sent it, though, he came rushing in with fear on his face and flipped on the lights. What happened? He said that Amber, a badass nurse at church, was still outside and ran to get her, and she came back in and situated both her kid and her mother in chairs. She asked me if I could sit up, and it hurt so much. Each and every one of us is on a dangerous post-apocalyptic journey. It's not safe to travel alone. So much can go wrong, it does. And we can't conjure enough hope on our own. So much can befall us, and it will. And there are people on this journey who we might be willing to help, but whose help we would hate to need. And some of us have learned along the way that it's best to be self-reliant to not show how weak and pitiful and needy and middle-aged and clumsy we are. Because it's embarrassing, because other people may not be inclined or able to help us anyway. But to a church of people committed to doing justice for LGBTQ people and those who love them, doing kindness for folks with mental, mental illness, doing beauty for our God who is beautiful, doing real relationships, and doing whatever it takes to share this good news. Maybe Jesus' particular question to this particular people is to ask, what can you not do for yourself? What can you not fix for yourself? What is it that you need someone else to do something to you in order to fix? Maybe Jesus would cast people like us in the role of the injured one, gritting our teeth and embarrassment to have to call out for, pain, for help. Maybe Jesus wouldn't cast us as the hero or ask us to do the kinds of things that I think we're inclined to do anyway, but would stop and come near us and seeing the big picture of all of who we are and what we need would be moved with pity. Maybe he would ask us to gather regularly with others that we can learn to trust, others we can learn are trustworthy. And maybe he would ask us to be a church, and I mean this in the broadest sense, maybe he would ask us to be a church committed to the gracious receipt of care from the church family. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. 
To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.